This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hardman. Rishi Sunak is facing his first Tory Commons rebellion on the issue of UK house building targets. James, can you just fill us on the details here? This is a Theresa Villiers amendment to uh, levelling up bill. Yeah, so in the leadership campaign, Liz Truss promised to abolish top-down housing targets. And as Prime Minister, she said she would do that. And this amendment is essentially seeking to enact that. What the amendment doesn't take into account is that Liz Truss was planning to abolish top-down housing targets with one hand, but on the other hand, create these investment zones where planning rules would be massively relaxed. What has happened is that investment zones have now changed to just being basically based around universities, much less about housing, more about lab space and things like that. Theresa Villiers is still trying to abolish these top-down housing targets. Now, I think that I think that in a perfect world, local communities would look to see where they could build more houses and you wouldn't need any top-down targets. The problem is we don't build enough houses in this country and you can say that top-down targets are a crude way of achieving that aim. But at the moment, no one has come up with anything that actually succeeds in getting more houses built than top-down targets. So what are you going to do? And I mean, there's also a particular worry that this is coming at a time when house building is likely to slow down anyway. And so are you going to end up worsening the housing supply crisis quite considerably? Isabel, already we're at 47 in terms of the number of Tory MPs wanting to back this. So is this a game over for Shizunak? I think it's a very difficult rebellion to quell because it's not about Rishi Sunak per se. I mean, there are some people on the list of rebels who've signed up to this amendment who who do not like Rishi Sunak and have made their um, dislike of him clear. But this isn't a sort of one of those rebellions that we do often have in the Tory party where it's about sort of personal rancour. This is about a, a really emotive sort of touchstone Tory issue. And as James was alluding to, planning reform is, is now so complicated and it is so difficult to build new homes that the the sort of tangled system means that once someone has decided that a particular aspect of planning policy is going to concrete over their constituency it's very hard to provide I was going to say concrete evidence but you know what I mean to disprove that because it may increase the number of homes that are being built it also may not and uh, obviously you don't know until those homes have turned up now generally over the past sort of decade of the Conservatives trying them running scared from planning reform uh, what has happened is those homes have not been built but there's been an almighty row with the same group of MPs on the backbenches and the same uh, interest groups outside Parliament and the same newspapers and uh, slightly different permutations each time but we're having that row again this time and um, if you look at the MPs who are on this list a lot of them are you know, understandably in the southeast of England, in the sort of traditional blue wall of Tory seats. If you talk to uh, red wall conservatives, they are much more gung ho about house building and about uh, getting on with uh, being able to uh, welcome in the next generation of conservative voters 
who will convert to the Tories' cause uh, by owning a home, which is becoming something that you have to basically be near pensionable age in order to do now. And James, as Isabel points out, this isn't a new problem. Ultimately, we've seen this under Boris Johnson when he proposed to do really radical planning reform and in the end, Robert Jenner was moved, Michael Gove was brought in. So what do you think are the options here? It seems that the government could simply pull the vote and then try and work on these rebels. Are these rebels ultimately thinking about the next election and keeping their seat? I think one of the, I mean, one of the problems is that planning reform is always made more difficult when people are worried about what the precise impact in their seat would be. And I think it's any coincidence that planning reform under Boris Johnson, who had a majority of, you know, who had personally won a majority of 80, was pulled after the Tories lost the Cheshire and Amersham by-election, after the Lib Dems, you know, put a particular focus on planning in that campaign. And I mean, the danger is with where the polls are at the moment, with the Tories still 20-odd points behind, lots of people in, in and Theresa Villiers' seat is not a safe seat, but lots of people in seats that look safe on paper are very worried that planning could be the thing that puts them in danger from the Liberal Democrats. And so they become even more inclined to say, oh, well, no, I don't know about this planning reform. And then I think, as Isabel says, I think it's another interesting and important point here, is there is so much wrong with the planning system that what you hear from various of the rebels on this bill as well, you've got to solve the land banking problem. That That's the issue, not the top-down targets. It's developers don't build out their planning permissions. Now, there's obviously some truth to that. But the truth is that the planning crisis is so great that you've got to solve every bit of it. If you If you operate on a principle of don't touch this bit until you've solved everything else, you end up with not enough houses being built, which is a situation this country has been in for, for quite some time now. Now, in other news today, Chloe Smith, the former Work and Pension Secretary, has announced that she plans to stand down as an MP by the next election. There is a deadline of early December for MPs to say that they are planning to to do this and, and not stand for re-election. Isabel, are we expecting Chloe Smith to be one of many? And if so, what do you think the driving factors are? I think she is probably, what yeah, the first of a number of MPs who have decided at an age that would be not so much your political prime, but really, you know, in previous years, the start of a political career, not the end of it, that life is too short to stay in politics for much longer. You know, she's she's been in Parliament for 15 years. Uh, she's actually managed to fight successfully five elections, which is testament as much to the political turmoil we've had as to her election winning ability. But for Chloe Smith, who has a young family, who has recently undergone treatment for breast cancer and been given the all clear... I think she, you know, has lots of personal factors for thinking life is too short, I want to move on and do something else. But that is something I hear from so many MPs of her age, of her generation, who in years gone by might have been settling in for a good long stint in the Commons, but instead are conforming to a pattern we saw particularly at the 2019 election where we didn't have more MPs standing down than normal, but what we did have was more younger MPs standing down after 10 years or less even of service seeing being an MP as being just the latest stage in their career part of their CV rather than the pinnacle actually some of them when they leave parliament discover that MP can actually be a bit of a uh, bit of a uh, detraction on a uh, CV and that employers are either baffled or totally put off by the idea that someone was a member of parliament but in some ways that's a good thing because it means you have you know fresh experiences, fresh blood. It also means you have a lot of inexperienced people coming into Parliament and people who've just started to 
I mean, not just navigate their way around the corridors of power, because, you know, we've all been in the Commons for quite a while, and I think none of us would say we know where we're going most of the time. MPs also don't know where they're going in terms of scrutinising legislation and sort of doing the basic job. They've learnt from a lot of their mistakes, which they then, you know, they then leave, take that experience with them, and a new generation has to come in and make the mistakes again. So it, it doesn't benefit Parliament and politics more, more generally. James, Clarice Smith has a very marginal seat. So I suppose for these MPs, very marginal seats looking at the polls, they have a particular concern in the sense that lots of MPs with what you would have thought was a decent majority, and I don't think very safe. Look, her seat has always been marginal. She won it off Labour in a by-election in, in 2009. And, you know, and in some ways, it was a kind of seat that the Tories would probably only have won in a by-election. And then she's obviously a good and popular constituency MP, as we, as we discovered in 2019 when we went to her, her seat, Katie. Uh, and so she's managed to hold on to it. And there are two other things I, I, I bought as, as well, so very interesting read Isabel's book but the, the other well the plug is coming at the end yeah, right. no, but, the, but the, the, the other two factors I would say is this is one is obviously Chloe Smith became a cabinet minister became a secretary of state then the prime minister changed and she didn't want to stay in government in a more junior role the, the kind of desire to climb the greasy pole has, has clearly dimmed and then I mean the second thing is this is that and this is this is a big change People now become MPs as a kind of first career. She is leaving at an age where you can hope to go off and have a second career and and be successful in that second career as well. And that is an inversion of what used to be the way that politics operated. It used to be that people did something else and then came to politics. And and, and when I, uh, not to make myself sound older than I am, but when I started Spectator's Political Editor, you know, 40 for a new MP would have been a kind of completely standard mm. age. What is remarkable is she is retiring after a relatively lengthy political career in modern terms, and she's still young enough to go off and have, you know, another uh, very successful career in something else if she so chooses to do. But I think this is a big question because this is a big challenge to the way we think about our politicians. And, and so, you know, how does this operate? And, you know, you look at the... You know, look at the ages of which, you know, um, Boris Johnson and Theresa May are exceptions to this, but look at how young so many people have been when they left office. And, and look at, you know, look at George Osborne as a kind of classic example of, of this. I think, there is a, I think there is a very interesting discussion about what kind of politicians we want to have, what kind of requirements we want to place on them. But I also think that the other thing which we shouldn't forget is if you've got a seat that isn't a safe seat, just the sheer toll if you live in a marginal seat where at the beginning of a campaign you don't know whether you're going to have a job at the end of it or not of fighting elections as often as people have in recent years. I think also I think that's really instructed those who are thinking about their seat battles now. They've seen a lot of colleagues go through that election battle to hold a seat and then lose it and you know, we all know how brutal those lineups are on polling night where you have them standing next to their rivals and they've just been told what the result is but they're still processing it and they've got the rival party cheering because they've won and they're cheering also this person losing their job it's a very very public way of losing your job which most people listening to this podcast you've lost their jobs know that it really sort of knocks your confidence actually to have that happen in you know the full glare of the cameras and everything is is quite a lot and talking to MPs they'll say well you know you do get a payoff if you stand and lose but I'm not sure whether the mental knock of that 
of that loss is actually worth the payoff. So some of them just think, I'm going to leave with my head held high and, you know, <laughs> actually earn more money than I would do if I spent six months trying to recover from what had just happened. I'm sure lots of listeners will be playing tiny violins here, but, you know, that's where we are. I, I think one of the other things about the toll on marginal seats is is it is so unpredictable. You know, 2015, Gavin Barwell holds on to his marginal seat, writes a book about how to hold a marginal seat. Everyone thinks it's the exceptional campaign. In 2017, through kind of odd circumstances two years on ends up finding another general election which he then loses and I think this is I think the kind of psychological toll of not knowing of the unpredictability and especially I think the toll on your family Mm. around you of that is such that you know it is a tough ask and I think we are also going to see more of this because that because politics has become because people's voting patterns have become less tribal I think one of the big trends we will see in politics over the next 10-20 years is that fewer and fewer seats will be safe, that fewer and fewer seats will be kind of guaranteed one way or or the other. In a sense, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because it makes politicians work harder for votes. But I think it will lead to an adjustment of the kind of people we get coming in. And there are so many other reasons why you wouldn't want to be an MP on top of that job insecurity, that you may well have candidates who would be very good at this job thinking life's too short. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to The Spectator in our Black Friday sale and get the next 12 weeks of the magazine in print and online for just £12. And we'll also throw in a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey worth £30 absolutely free. Hurry though, this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Friday.